We're going to have a moment, a special moment to honor um, the mothers. We even have special little gifts. Um, so I want to, I'm going to say a few words. I want to pray for all of our mothers, um, whether they're here or someplace else or online. My mama, I'm almost convinced, assuming our live stream is, is working this week. I was, I was not, dang I had a special shout out, at an online shout out planned for my mama. Oh well, that's okay. She'll listen to this maybe. Love you, mama. There, done. Um, can I ask all of our mothers to stand, please? Don't be shy. Don't be shy. Yeah. Okay, so. Yeah, just please stay standing for a minute. In my opinion, I think we should find ways to do something extra special for our moms every day, because that's what we do at my house. Guys, will you join me in prayer? I want us to, to bless all of our moms together. Can we do that? Did any mama not get a gift? Okay, and by the way, that pretty little basket with those gifts in it will be setting on the welcome table in the back. So if you would like to take one with you to give to a mama or a foster mama or a grandma or someone special that maybe you're gonna see later on today, please take them, that's what they're they're for. So uh, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our mothers and thank you for just the, the excuse to take a moment and celebrate the gift of our moms. Lord, I pray that you would bless them today, um, that they would feel just an overwhelming sense of affection. And Lord, I pray for those who, who are perhaps missing their mamas, perhaps mourning the loss of their moms. Lord, I pray that you would, um, you would minister to every one of us and people um, who need to be reminded that whether we have biological mothers or even fathers for that matter, um, currently in this life, um, we all have your love available to us. I pray that you would help us this morning to experience your love in ways that perhaps we've never done before. We need more of you. But bless the mamas, most of all. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right. Thank you for uh, getting the gifts and coordinating all of that, Casey. We are going to continue our long, meandering journey through the gospel according to John this morning. Um, we have been slowly but surely working through this book called John, it's the gospel according to John. It's this disciple of Jesus who knew and walked with Jesus and ended up writing down like the account of experience, the teachings of Jesus, the miracles, the death and resurrection. And uh, there's four different accounts of Jesus, four gospel accounts of Jesus John is one of them. The way this book has been written, it's not just a mere biography. 
It's an invitation. When you read it, almost immediately you can tell John, empowered by the Spirit of God, is writing in such a way as to invite people, walk with Jesus, learn to trust him. Uh, This isn't just something that happened in ancient history. This Jesus who we've been walking with as we read through John, he's living. And Jesus made this promise that when we gather, like people have been doing this for like 2,000 years. When we gather like this, begin to worship together in song and put our attention on him, he's with us. He's with us. I know for some of you that might just be way too mystical to even like get your head around. But this, this is just, this is basic Christianity. We're not just um, theorizing about spiritual things to do with a dead guy named Jesus. He's inviting us to experience life with him. And therefore we have been walking with Jesus as we have been working our way through the book of John. So there's a little, little intro if you're new this morning. We're gonna to go to John chapter eight. In fact, we're gonna actually finish chapter eight this morning. And if you have been tracking along, then you'll know that this is actually the very last part of a long, like almost like two, three chapter long conversation slash argument that Jesus has been having with, um, let's call them opponents. People who are very, very skeptical. They don't believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. They certainly don't like some of the things that he's saying or the way he's acting. And the longer they listen to him, the more it would seem that he's beginning to almost make himself out to be like one with God, um, which is extremely problematic for the people that are listening to him. So this is the last sort of bit of that conversation. So we're gonna look at John chapter eight, verses 48 through 59 this morning. And if you have a Bible, please go ahead and follow along, although the text will be on the screens as well. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yeah, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jew said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar, like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it from a distance and was glad. 
So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, would you be our teacher this morning? Would you help us? Would you open up our hearts and our minds to receive from you this morning? Not just to learn more about you per se, but really to experience more of you. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. There's two things I wanna focus on um, from this portion of scripture we just looked at. Um, Number one, that is the big unveil. And number two, the great reform. The big unveil and the great reform. Um, Firstly, and most obviously, Jesus says something here that uh, you may not be aware of its significance, particularly if you've never studied the book of John or even the Bible for that matter, but in verse 58, he makes this statement, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus ascribes to himself the divine title, I am. In Greek, it's the words ego and me. I am. And you might think that's just like poor grammar. Um, It's not. Jesus is being very, very deliberate. And this is the big unveil. There's been all sorts of heated debate about who this Jesus is and who exactly are you claiming to be? Who do you think you are? He finally comes out with it. Oh, but ever so cryptic, as always. Not really, though. His opponents, those listening to him, the the Jews, of course, Jesus was a Jew himself, but the people who were arguing with him, they knew exactly what he meant. They picked up stones. It was clear Jesus had ascribed to himself the divine title. Before Abraham was, I am. This is the, um, the way that God himself in the Old Testament, this is Exodus chapter three, all the way back in the beginning of the story. God meets a man named Moses in the desert, and we'll come back to that story in a minute. But he meets this man named Moses in the desert, and God wants to utilize Moses, this uh, failed activist turned pastor, to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. And Moses is like, I, you got the wrong guy, I can't do this. They kind of go back and forth and um, God insists that, nope, you're, you're the one, you're the guy. So Moses says, well, when I go to tell your people that you've sent me to deliver them out of slavery, who shall I tell them sent me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. In the uh, Hebrew, of course, this would have been Old Testament, the Hebrew, it's eheyeh. 
It's the, it's the same two words, I am. And so Jesus, um, he knows exactly what he's saying. And so does uh, his listeners, unless they pick up the stones to throw at him. This is essentially what, where John began. If we go all the way back to the very first chapter and verse of the gospel according to John, this, this is Jesus who is the word, the divine creative essence come to dwell with us among the created, the creatures, us. Or in other words, uh, to quote the prophet Isaiah, Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So there it is. Jesus is God with us. Mm, Good luck making sense out of that. It's what uh, theologically we refer to as the hypostatic union of Christ. Jesus, who is the God man, 100% God, 100% man. This is not the first time he'll make a statement like this. So they picked up stones to throw at him because they knew exactly what he was saying, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus is the great I am. Now he has said something that's now made it virtually impossible for us to simply write him off or put him on the shelf of all the other you know, different spiritual cabals. He, he's actually claimed to be someone utterly unique, unlike any other rivals. Jesus, the great I am, he's entirely something else. This is the Jesus who can't be killed. He hid himself and slipped away, he left the temple, which by the way, bit of a side note, the fact that it says, and Jesus, the great I am, left the temple. Oh my goodness, I love how creative John gets with his little cryptic theological references. Jesus left the temple. But this is the Jesus who can't be killed, nor will he be cornered. Eventually, we will discover that even Jesus' death was not murder. Rather, it was a free will offering for murderers, for liars, for rabble and sinners like us. Jesus wasn't merely another spiritual guru who could be tamed or trapped, stuck in the walls of human philosophy where we imagine his job is to perhaps affirm my quasi-religious Uh, moral slash political preferences so that I can get on living my neat, tidy, comfortable little life. No, that's not Jesus. He is entirely something else. He's the greater one who calls us to follow him, to surrender to him, to his authority, to worship him, to trust him to know his love, to become convinced that his ways are so much higher. This is who Jesus is. This is the big unveil. So go crazy with that.
Which brings us to the great reform. Now, (laughs) Jesus is so bold. He tells these quote-unquote religious experts that they they, you think you know God, but you don't. I know him, and if I were to say that I don't know him, well then I'd be a liar like you. Okay? These are, these are the experts of his day. I, I can almost guarantee you, I, I, I guarantee you with full certainty that these people that Jesus was having this interaction with, oh, they knew their Old Testament Bibles way, way better than all of us in this room. They were reading it in Hebrew, memorizing massive chunks. They, they, they knew their Bibles. And yet Jesus looks straight at him and says, I'm standing right in front of you. You think you know God, but you don't. Don't you find that just like a little, little bit challenging? I always think to myself, because I'm a, my, my wife always compliments me for being a man of deep, deep principle. It's actually, I'm just super stubborn and I think I'm always right. <clears throat> and sometimes I wonder to myself, um, am I? I'm so convinced that I somehow figured out exactly what it is or what he's like. And uh, occasionally, I'll read a passage like this and I'll wonder, huh, what aspects of God have I perhaps gotten slightly wrong? You know, I think, I believe every person, certainly every generation, needs to experience spiritual reform. I think it's just, it's just the human way. Um, we, we're, we're kind of prideful a little bit, just speaking for myself. And, and as soon as we think we've got it figured out, we've got it locked down, the spirit will come along by his mercy and begin to upset our view and begin to disrupt what we think God is like only to reveal to us that he is so much better, so much greater, so much more than we've what we thought he was. And it's super, super humbling. And it's the, it's the reform of the spirit at work in the church through the ages. We have a tendency to lose our way. We're like God's people who get set free and we rejoice and we celebrate and then we begin to make our way through the desert. And we really don't get that far, usually not more than a generation, before we kind of forget all of the wonderful things that God has done for us. And, and God in his mercy meets us again and begins to reform our hearts and remind us that he's actually better. He's even more merciful. He's even more wise. He's more powerful. He's a God to be greatly feared. And he's a father who loves us more than we will ever, ever fathom. And so the spirit begins to reform the generation. He reforms our hearts. You say you know him, but do you allow me to enlighten you? Our teacher would say. I am. Um, It's obviously not just an arbitrary 
sort of God reference that Jesus uses or applies to himself. It's a very specific, in fact, that, that divine title, as it were, that Jesus references in this moment, it's only used one place in the entire Bible. Exodus 3.14. As I was saying, it, it takes place in that moment where this man named Moses, failed activist turned pastor prophet, is out in the desert. He tried to actually deliver God's people from slavery, totally failed, went about it all wrong. And so he goes out to the desert, he's there for 40 years, and just the right time, God meets him in the most bizarre fashion. He sees this bush on fire, and apparently it's not burning up. He must have been staring at it long enough. I'm, I'm told that it wouldn't, been in, it wouldn't have been entirely uncommon to see a bush spontaneously combust out in the Sinai Desert. I, I've, I've actually been, I've spent about a week out in the Sinai Desert. It gets properly hot and super dry. Apparently there's, there's like manzanita bushes that can combust into flames, but it wasn't burning up. And so he stares and he's wondering, God's got his attention. And then he speaks to him out of the flame and he says, Moses, come near and tells him to take off his shoes. You're standing on holy ground. He begins to have this conversation with God in the burning bush. It's bizarre. And he says, Moses, I'm gonna send you to deliver my people. Actually, I'm going to deliver my people and I wanna involve you. So they have this conversation. That's, again, where God says, tell them I am sent you. I am, I've always been. I'm the the self-existent God. Name drop Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm that God, the God of your forefathers, the God who made promises to you that you've probably forgotten. But I'm that God, and I've not forgotten my promises. I've come to deliver you. Jesus is saying, remember that story? That's who I am. That's what I'm here to do. That's what you've forgotten. This is the God that that Jesus is reintroducing the world to. This is the great reform. His opponents thought that, I, I would argue, that they thought that the Messiah was gonna come to basically like sign off on their agenda, their plan, affirm their view of how this was all supposed to go down because they wanted to be delivered. They, they were being oppressed and they thought it was to happen a particular way. Perhaps uh, through military might. I think that's kind of how Moses thought it might go down when he was attempting to deliver his brethren from slavery in Egypt. They had missed it. He's, Jesus is saying, I'm that God, the God who came to deliver his people. This is the God of deliverance. Let's go to Exodus. There's um, this moment in John chapter eight. It's meant to be read like as if there's a hyperlink, a theological hyperlink right there in the text. Jesus takes just that one little 
title that he ascribes to himself, and in so doing, he just imports this whole narrative that's meant to reform the listeners, that we might remember this is what he's like. This is who Jesus is and what he's come to do for us. So Exodus, there's just a few things here that I think, I think God has for us. In Exodus chapter three, um, verses seven and eight, so this is uh, just before God uses the I am title on himself. They're standing in that little desert and Moses has got his sandals off and that bush is burning and God says to Moses, I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians those who have oppressed them, their slave masters. I've seen their affliction, I've heard their cry, and I know their suffering. This is the God who is I am. One of the most difficult things I think we'll ever experience in our experience of human life is not suffering, but suffering unjustly and feeling like there's not a single being in the universe who knows what we're going through or where we're really at. Suffering's not fun, but to suffer alone. To sit in a room like this and to feel like you're dying inside, and maybe you attempt to open up get vulnerable, share something with someone in the room, and occasionally someone might think, oh, I know what will help you, I'll give you some trite advice. And then you feel more alone and misunderstood than you did when you started. This, this is difficult. This is real suffering. But God's God's not into trite advice. This is the God who says, I can hear your cries. You may think you're alone. You may think I don't care. You may think I've forgotten about you. You may think that way too much time has passed. But I do hear you. Oh, I see you. And I know your pain. I know your suffering. This is the God who is, I am. This is the God who rescues slaves out of bondage. Now, if the part about God seeing, hearing, and knowing your pain is encouraging, this is the part that's actually super challenging. For some. The God who is I am is the God who delivers, who delivers slaves out of bondage. He doesn't come to bolster the power of those on top. He doesn't come to affirm the plans of the people in charge. God always comes to deliver slaves out of bondage. This is what he does. And if you think you're not a slave, then I don't know if God's really got much for you. Because God only gives grace to the humble. 
He's intensely interested in widows and orphans, those who are weak, those who are tired, those who are oppressed, those who have been taken captive. He is strong for the weak. But if you're rich and powerful, or you believe you're rich and powerful, then grace isn't gonna mean a whole lot to you because this is the God who comes to rescue slaves out of bondage. This can be really challenging. This can be really, really challenging. Um, This is where things can get slightly offensive. God is forever for the captives and the oppressed, the poor and the exploited, the enslaved and the weak. This is why when Jesus um, inaugurates his public ministry in the gospel according to Luke, he makes his, uh, his first appearance in a synagogue and, and, and he opens up Torah and he says, bring me the scroll of Isaiah and he opens it up to Isaiah 61 and he reads this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me, empowered me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. Elsewhere in the New Testament, in the book of Titus chapter three, it says that at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. The God whose I am comes to deliver slaves from bondage. This, uh, what this, I mean, the implications are, are vast. What this means is that God doesn't just give favor to those whom he's impressed with or the people who've just got it all figured out and do all the right things and have all the right answers. God comes to give grace to the broken, to those who are contrite, to those who know that they are blind, that they are sick, that without a savior we are enslaved to the core. That, that levels the playing field. That means I can't sort of look down on those people and be like, well, I'm I'm glad that I'm not like them. I'm glad that God favors me because, you know, well, obviously I'm I'm one of the good ones. No, no. God comes to deliver slaves out of bondage. And if you don't get that, then you don't get the gospel. Now, there could be that, that could be like a death blow to the ego uh, and or really, really good news. If you say, yes, please, I, I am broken, I am oppressed, I'm addicted, I'm enslaved, I'm hopeless, I'm weak, I'm tired, I need help. In which case, God has so much grace for you. He has everything you need for life, for godliness, to rescue you, to make you his own. This is at the core of the gospel. It begins by calling us sinners, saying that we're dead, 
We're enslaved. We're more wrecked than we could possibly understand or even want to fathom. God meets us there and he says, I have new life for those who say I'm dead. I have freedom for those who say, I'm tired of living in bondage. I have grace for the humble. That is good news. Last point. This is the God who knows the pain of suffering people. This is the God who rescues slaves out of bondage. And this is the God who fights for the silent folk. If we keep reading the story in Exodus, three, four, five, eventually God does exactly what he told Moses he would do. He begins to act. He moves mightily. It's quite a a story. Check it out. Exodus, the Egyptian uh, oppressors, they, they go through it. God is so patient. He gives them so many chances. Um, but in the end, he has, to, he has to act quite mightily. And um, when you finally get to Exodus chapter 14, they're now standing right at the edge of the Red Sea. This is it. This is, it's all about to go down. And uh, they're freaking out because they, they can't see how God can possibly rescue them out of their situation. And God, God says this, um, well, actually he tells Moses to say this to his people in Exodus 14, 13 and 14. He says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. This is the most difficult part of, um, of the process. The God who is I am, the God who delivers us, the God who knows our suffering, The way he does it is by simply saying, be still, be quiet, trust me, and let me fight for you. Is this not just like the hardest thing ever? And I like that he says, be silent. Not like don't do anything, because in the very next verse he says, all right, now enough enough crying, like get up, time to go. Time to put one foot in front of the next, but he does say, be silent. Because you know, we all know what we do, right? When, when life feels out of control and the situation is just a little too much, not everyone, some of us I think are a little bit better at being quiet than others, but usually we all come to that point to where our anxiety just erupts and we begin to just blah, and we use our words and our posting and all of our, any, any way that we can, maybe not even audibly, but we, we panic and we tend to want to cling, seize for control, take matter into our own hands. And you know what happens when us people decide God's not doing it quite how we'd like it or not quick enough? we decide to take matters into our own hands, things usually start to get violent. Like this is, this is the pattern. 
This is the pattern of like world history. Every time us humans decide that we can do it better than God, and we start to run our mouths, it's the beginning of violence. God is the judge. If oppressors need to be judged, we need to trust God to do that right. This is so hard. This is so hard. It can feel like, yeah, but that's just spiritual things. That's like churchy things. That doesn't actually, like real life requires like real power. Real action. There's certainly a, um, a difficult paradox here. I'll, I'll be the first to admit it. Like real life does involve like activism and, 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 and feeding hungry people and defending defenseless people. That, that's, that's like real life. And yet over and over and over again, we see God telling his people, be still, be quiet, trust me. Trust me. Of course, inevitably, God will call us to action. He'll send us out and he'll say, go. Go. Feed the widows and the orphans. Stand in the gap for the defenseless. Act where you see injustice. Be peacemakers where there's violence. But only after we've waited For 50 days, they waited in the upper room. God says, don't go anywhere, don't do anything, just wait. Wait. Just wait. Then go. Then act. Then speak. But wait. Be silent. Oh, this is so hard because this means I I have to actually trust that he is the great deliverer. Jesus is. I am. I think that um, this part of the process is actually much more difficult for some than others. Um, I am, I I feel like I'm I'm constantly confessing my insecurities and and awkwardness. I hope it blesses you. Um, (laughs) But I'm the kind of guy where it's like, I learned at a very young age that like, okay, I'm not gonna be the shot caller. I'm not gonna be the one impressing the masses, having all the answers and, and the big muscles and all that. I learned that, uh, you know how I learned that? Like early, early on playing sports. All my most epic sports stories are of my like super, super embarrassing failures. And that's how I learned. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm not, maybe, maybe I'm not the, the team captain type. I'm, not, I'm probably not gonna be the president or the CEO or, or whatever. And so I realized, oh, I need, I need help. And when I finally met Jesus, oh my goodness, it just, it, it seemed so logical. Of course, of course I need help. Of course, I mean, look at me, I'm a wreck. I'm like, I mean, I'm as awkward as they come. Like, yes, please, Jesus, help, help. And I was enslaved. I was absolutely enslaved. 
in all sorts of ways. I won't go into it. But I, I realize, like, oh, of course, I'm weak. I need a savior. Some of you, though, you, you were class president, and you did make the goals, and you did, you did all the things, and you're super smart, you're super strong, and maybe you're rich, and all the things. That makes it difficult. And actually, Jesus talks about that. He, says, he, he actually talks about it in terms of, of money. He says it's really, really hard for those who are rich in this life to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because, of course, financially, there's all sorts of inherent security so we might think. And it doesn't mean you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. It just might mean Jesus might ask you to give everything you have to the poor, then come following me. Come follow me. And that's hard. That's really, really hard. Some of you in here, you're like, I'm, I'm already living like a slave. I feel like Egypt is my jam. I understand weakness. I understand brokenness. I'm so grateful that there is a God in heaven who hears my cries, who sees me, who knows my suffering and cares. Please, can just say that 20 more times. And others of you, you need to be reminded like, hey, you think you're strong, you think you're rich. Jesus has other words for you. He loves you as well. But for you, grace might feel like being broken down. And maybe you do need to like start figuring out ways, like maybe for me, repentance looks like giving away everything that I have to the poor. Maybe for me, uh, experiencing weakness that I might stand in the power of his might looks like me uh, letting go of things that I have found security in so that I don't ever have to feel weak. Like I've got my little empire going on. I've got my things that, that, that cause me to feel secure and strong. And Jesus would say, you know that all of those things will perish with this world. They can be taken away like that. We all know that. Let go of these things and come follow me. And that's a hard teaching. But I think some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're probably really mad at me for saying it out loud. But it's good news. It's good news. It's God's mercy. It's his kindness that calls us to surrender everything that we might experience. His strength. His faithfulness. He is who we're all truly looking for. You guys want to hear one of my epic sports stories? That's powerful stuff. I was playing, I grew up playing water polo. Swimming and water polo every season, every other season. And uh, one summer, I was like, this is it. I'm tired of being the awkward kid on the team. So I, I tried so hard and I made it to like the A team. The summer league water polo. And for sure, I was like the weakest kid on the team, but I was on the A team. And as it turns out, uh, there was just enough players, seven of us, to, to make the team, which means no subs, no rest. So you swam the whole time, no touch in the bottom. And I'm going for it, going for it, going for it. I was so exhausted by the end of the game. It went into overtime, sudden death, and I was so exhausted. I thought I was going to drown. 
I was on the other side of the pool while all the other players were on the side where the ball was because I was so tired. There's a breakaway. Someone intercepts the ball, lobs it all the way over to me. I'm about to win the tournament for our team. It's just me and their goalie. And I'm like, I'm treading water. The adrenaline is surging. I'm like, fake pump, fake pump. I throw this ball as hard as I can. It rolls off my hand and literally just goes like out of the pool, like not even anywhere near the net, just just straight out of the pool. (laughs) And the thing, the the, the horn goes off and uh, all my teammates are looking at me, we're all exhausted, we're getting out of the pool. The coach is like, you get him next time, Bardoni. I'm just like, my worst. Jesus, just come, please. I'm so weak. <clears throat> you know, moments like that, that's a gift. That's a gift. I'm convinced God in his mercy, he allows us to go through things that we might be confronted with our, our humanity, our brokenness. Jesus is so good. He is the great I am. Can we stand together, please? Worship team, would you mind joining me? Next week, um, as we continue walking with Jesus throughout the book of John, we're going to, it's, it, we're going to, we're actually going to enter into a whole new section of the journey. I'm super excited. This has kind of been a, a slog, and it's been good. Oh, but next week, it's going to be fun. I've said a lot. I mean, just the whole, I mean, there's so much more that could be said about this Jesus who is I am. I reckon I've said enough. Typically, um, you know, there's like a spectrum of like kind of where we're at, what we're processing through. You might be in this room, and you're like, I'm not even a Christian. I don't even believe in God. You might be in this room, and you'd be like, I've been, I've been a Christian 20, 30, 40 years. And, and there's never a point where at whatever stage you're at in the journey where you can look back and be like, yeah, I've, I've kind of graduated. Like I've sort of figured it all out. That's just, that's not part of walking with Jesus. There's always a new moment where, where Jesus wants to come to us and like humble us and so that we might experience like more of his faithfulness, more of his love, that we might be empowered to, to wait and then go and act. My appeal to all of us this morning, including myself, of course, as we worship in song, you can, you can sing out loud. You don't have to just sit and like think quietly, but, but be thinking and, and say, Lord Jesus, I don't know everything. I'm only just starting out. 
like in the grand scale of eternity, Lord Jesus, what do you want to do in my life? How do you want to, to help me um, experience more of your, your life today in my life? How might I grow? How might I repent? Where have I been prideful? Lord Jesus, would you help us this morning that we would um, find our place in your story Experience more of, of who you are, that you would be the hero um, in our lives, that we would experience more of your faithfulness, or that we would even just be reminded that, yeah, I too was once a slave, and you've delivered me out of darkness. Lord, would you uh, renew our, 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 our sense of gratitude, that we would leave here um, with, a, with a different perspective, Lord, hearts overwhelmed with thankfulness. Because you are so good. You have been so gracious towards us. We love you, Father.